Our scripture text this morning is in Mark chapter 9. You can find it in the bulletin or in your Bibles. Please stand with me as we read it together. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And later, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Our Father, we pray this morning that you would attend your word with power. We pray that you would speak to us, for we need you to speak to us. We need you to reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would point to Jesus as you always do, that we might see him, that our hearts might be comforted and changed, maybe even challenged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, uh, in another life almost, I used to guide backpacking trips in southwest Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. And early in the summer, when you're in the, in the San Juans, there's always lots of snow. And that makes, that makes finding your route often very difficult. And I remember one particular trip that I was guiding where I was just beginning to come overwhelmed with, with concern and with angst because my boots were slogging through the mud and we were in a valley that was covered with trees and I couldn't see and the snow was deep and as I, as I looked through the trees and up ahead I could see the continental divide and it was just blanketed with snow. And I knew that we had to go up and over it and it was way worse than I had anticipated. You know, I don't mind a little bit of, of snow and a little bit of mud when, when I'm hiking. It kind of makes it challenging and fun. But what really was getting to me was the uncertainty about what was going to happen. Here, I'm, I'm responsible for this, for this group. And, and I began to question whether or not we were actually going to be able to complete our route. You know, I didn't know if we were going to be able to make it through all of this snow. And, and the snow... Was, was making it difficult to, to find our route. You know, I began to question things that I saw on the map. I knew this territory, but I began to have doubts. And the thing that I really, really wanted as I sat there in the valley was just a moment or two up on the continental divide up ahead of us. Because I knew that from the peak, I would be able to see everything clearly. One, it would give me confidence that we would, in fact, be able to complete our route. And two, it would, it would show me where we were going. It would confirm what I knew to be true from the map, but that I was beginning to doubt. Now, many of you are overwhelmed with anxiety about the uncertainty of the future right now. You know, because of the economy, some of you have probably had your retirement savings cut in half. And you're, you're worried about what's going to happen. Others of you are trying to sell your house and you've had to lower the price again and again. And you're wondering, how is this going to work out? Some of you are, are just asking the question, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? Am I going to be alone? And some of you are are discouraged, even, even depressed, with the way your life seems to be going right now. You're slogging through a valley filled with snow and with mud, and you're exhausted, and you're surrounded by trees, and it's hard for you to see, and you worry about what's ahead of you. Am I going to make it? Is everything going to be all right? And what we really need is a view from the peak that will reorient us, that will show us what is real. 
Well, six days earlier, Peter had identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the one who was going to bring restoration to all things. But immediately after that, Jesus starts talking about dying. Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And if you're going to be my followers, you're going to have to come with me and do the same. It's the way of the cross. And the only way that you're going to find real life is by giving up your grasping. You're trying to secure your own happiness and success and well-being. Now you can imagine how, how deflating that would have been for the disciples. They had visions of glory and then Jesus starts talking about dying. It's almost like dad packs the family up in the car and says, Hey, we're going to Disney World. And then he pulls off the highway and says, You know what? I decided we're going to go on a service project in a, in a hot and dirty place instead. And, and the kids are just going, Come on. And it's hard to have a good attitude when, when th- the plans seem to have totally changed from what you expected. And so Jesus knew that, that his disciples needed encouragement Because they couldn't see how his humiliation that we just talked about together had anything to do with glory. And so they needed to see his exaltation as well. See, Jesus had completely overturned their ideas of what the kingdom of God looked like. All of a sudden, he starts showing them that it has nothing to do with power grasping and everything to do with humility and service and sacrifice. Not protecting our own rights, but giving them up. How would they be able to embrace this new kingdom agenda without despairing? When verse 1, Jesus said that some of them would see the kingdom of God come with power. They would get a glimpse of true power, of true glory that's usually hidden. What they needed was a view from the peak to prepare them for life in the valley. See, life's valleys come at us hard and they sometimes discourage us and they bring us trials and they bring us face to face with our own desperate situation. And sometimes the trail ahead of us is full of suffering and challenge and difficulty. And it's the way of the cross. And so to make it in the valley, we need a view from the peak. What we really need is to be able to see and cling to a vision of Jesus in his glory. We need to see him as the glorious king. So six days later... Look at verse 2. Six days later, Jesus gives three of his closest companions just such a view from the peak. And we know that the the transformation was was for the disciples. In verse 2, it says Jesus was transfigured before them. In verse 4, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared to them. When the voice of God speaks out of the cloud in verse 7, he's speaking to them. He's speaking to the disciples. This whole experience was aimed at one thing, at reassuring the disciples and at preparing them for what lay ahead. So the first question we want to ask is, is what do we see from the peak? What do we see when we're up there? 
Well, we see Jesus transfigured before them. He's literally changed in form. And, and he's bright white. He's radiant. Jesus is glowing. His clothes are so bright that they're radiating light outward and filling the clouds around him with light. He's lighting up the night sky. His disciples have been worrying about power. And now Jesus shows them that he is far more powerful, far more glorious than they ever imagined. But his power is different than they ever imagined. So from the peak we see that that Jesus is, is powerful and he's glorious. He's not simply a teacher. And then in verse 4, Moses and Elijah show up. I mean, who are they and, and why are they here? They're two dead guys from the Old Testament. What are they doing? And Moses represents all of the Old Testament law. And Elijah represents all of the Old Testament prophets. And God had spoken to both of these men on mountains. And here they are on the mountain with Jesus. And in verse 7, God speaks out of a cloud. The very voice of God speaks out of a cloud that surrounds them. And all throughout the Bible, the cloud represents God's presence with his people. In the book of Exodus, after God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the wilderness to be his own people, he descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud and he calls Moses up to speak to him. And when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is glowing. It's shining because it's reflecting the glory of God. And all the people are afraid to even come near him. But notice here that Jesus is radiating light too, but it's not a reflection. The light's emanating out of himself. It's his own glory. Here is is the real glory the real, the real glory on the mountain that Moses and Elijah had only been able to see a glimpse of. And when Moses was on, was on the mountain, he had asked God. He would said, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to pass by you, but you can't see my face. Because if anyone sees my face, they will die. But here on the mountain, we see Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John standing in the cloud. They're right in the cloud. They're in the very midst of God's presence. And they're looking at Jesus full of glory. They're seeing him directly in the face. John would later write in his gospel, The word became flesh and and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They got to see the glory. And the presence of Moses and Elijah there shows us also that that Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament law and all of the Old Testament prophets. They all point to him. All of the threads that run through the Bible are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the, is the son of God who's been prophesied about, and he is the suffering servant. He's both. In Jesus, both glory and suffering come together. And Jesus is also the fulfillment of, of the law. He's, he's the ultimate temple. 
He is the ultimate priest and he's the ultimate sacrifice. So we see that that Jesus is the one who provides access into God's presence. And then the voice speaks in verse 7 and it says, God says, this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here they are in the presence of Moses and Elijah, these great figures from the Bible. And God points at Jesus and he says, this one, this one right here is my son. Listen to him. The author of, of Hebrews writes at the very beginning, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God says, listen to him. God has spoken through the prophets and he's spoken through the law, but now the disciples are to focus their attention on Jesus, the thing that they all pointed to. He's saying Jesus is it. Jesus is the unique authority. He's the only one standing on top of the mountain. Look at verse 8. It says, they look around and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are gone and they only see Jesus standing there. Jesus is the only one who provides access into God's presence. Now, for some of you, this exclusive claim that Jesus is is the only way into God's presence sounds incredibly arrogant. I mean, how can can Christianity make such an exclusive claim? And you might prefer... The image of, of many, many pathways up a mountain. You think, you know, Christianity is just one of many valid, valid pathways up the mountain, but they all get to the same place. And it's incredibly arrogant for anyone to claim that their way up the mountain is the only way. That Jesus is the only one on top of the mountain. I mean, there's many good paths. But think about this for a minute. How do you know that? How do you know that all of these different paths get up to the top of the mountain? You can't see that if you're standing on the mountain. You can't see what people are doing on the other side of the mountain. The only way that you could know that is if you're flying around the mountain in a helicopter. See, in order to make that claim that there's many valid paths up the mountain, you have to claim the most superior viewpoint of all. You have to say you can see the whole picture. You know better than anybody else because you see the whole thing. The other thing you need to think about is that, is that this idea that you might have that, that there are many paths doesn't just, doesn't just conflict with Christianity, but it would offend your sincere Muslim friends, your sincere Jewish friends, people from lots of different religions who all make exclusive claims that are mutually exclusive. And so, in effect, what you're saying is that my view, my view that there's many paths up the mountain, is the only right one. You're being just as exclusive as any of the rest of us. So we can't avoid the exclusivity of of Christianity. We can accept what Jesus says, about being the only one on top of the mountain, or we can reject it 
but we can't try to make him compatible. And so the question for you is, are you willing to really consider Christianity, to really take a look at this one who claims to be standing on top of the mountain? I'd encourage you to do so. So why do do the disciples and and why do we need the transfiguration so much? Why Why was this event here? I think the answer is that because Jesus oftentimes appears to us as weak and he doesn't seem like he is going to be the one who brings victory. And Christian, the Christian life is so often full of, of hardship and failure. And we look at ourselves and we, can, we, we still continue to struggle with sin. After all of these years, shouldn't we be doing a little better than this? And we get discouraged But what the transfiguration does for us is it gives us a glimpse for just a moment of what is real. It gives us a glimpse of the true king in his true power and reminds us that he has come and that the kingdom has come, that Jesus is at work in the world for us, that if we're Christians, Jesus is at work in us and that he's powerful and that he is able to right all wrongs He's more powerful than we could possibly imagine. But his power now isn't revealed in political or military might. It's revealed through his suffering and death on a cross. So that's what we see from the peak. The question is now, where do we need that view from the peak? And the answer is, when we're in the valley... Because that's where we live. When God speaks to the disciples, he says, listen to him. Listen to all of his words, but especially listen to the words that he just said about the necessity of his death on the cross that you are so willing, unwilling to hear, that you're so unwilling to embrace. In verse 9, it says they're coming down the mountain. Because life isn't lived up on the mountain, but it's in the demon-possessed valley. You know, the Christian life isn't one big mountaintop experience, as much as we'd like it to be. I mean, I don't know how many of you like me have, have been at camp and you just wish you could stay there forever and never come home because everything seems to be so perfect there. And in verse 5, Peter says, Lord, it is good to be here. This is fantastic. Look, glory is in the air. You're glowing and Moses and Elijah are here. This looks like a great place to set up camp. Maybe we could just stay here and maybe avoid that whole cross thing that you keep talking about and the suffering. Couldn't we just camp out here? Peter seems to want fulfillment now. He wants to avoid the suffering. Why do we have to go through that? And if you've ever been on top of a high peak and you've smelled the crisp, clean air, and you've looked out at all the beautiful views, you've probably wanted to linger there for a while. Why not just just stay there? But you know what's up there? The only thing that's up there at the top of the peak is rocks and marmots and moss. And we're not marmots. 
And we weren't meant to live on top of the mountain. We're meant to live in the valley. And so, in verse 9, as they're coming down, Jesus tells them not to talk about any of this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And they don't understand, and they wonder what he's talking about. And in verse 11, they ask, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? You know, Malachi had prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah to restore all things. So, they're going, Jesus, if, if the end is near, if, if fulfillment is about to come, where's Elijah? And if he's going to restore all things, then why do we have to do the suffering part? And Jesus says in verse 12, Elijah does come to restore all things. But how is it written about the Son of Man? That he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Guys, that doesn't mesh real well with your understanding of, of glory. But he says, Elijah did come. He was John the Baptist and they did whatever they wanted. They rejected him, and they killed him. And so why would it be any different for the Messiah? So Jesus enters glory only through suffering and battling demonic forces. And so he has to go down into the valley. So what does life look like there? We say that there's trials. The first thing that we see as soon as they come down off the mountain is that they're encountered by a demon-possessed boy. But this is going to help them see the relevance of Jesus. Because right now, the disciples aren't seeing why Jesus has to die. In fact, some of them have been down at the bottom of the mountain trying to cast out a demon without even praying. I mean, they don't understand the need for Jesus' death or to draw on Jesus' power. And this demon is just ravaging this boy, making him mute and deaf. And it tries to throw him into fire and into water, literally seeking to destroy him. Because that's what Satan does. He seeks to destroy us, to twist and destroy the image of God in us. And sometimes we think that, that Satan is wicked people's friend and advocate. He's not. He's trying to destroy every one of us. Some of you find the idea that there's even a demon here uh, just laughable. It seems naive to your, to your modern sophistication. How could anybody really believe in that kind of stuff now? But it's interesting that that, that view is actually in, in the minority now. That most people throughout the world do believe in demonic forces. And, and it's also inconsistent to believe in a good God and yet not believe in demons, not believe in personal evil. Now, why, why should we believe that there is one and not the other? So there's this demon, and he is just ravaging the boy, and there is nothing that anyone can do. There's nothing that anyone there can do to help him. Humanity is completely incapable. There's no counseling that can help this kid. There's no medicine. There's no psychology. Everyone is just in utter desperation. And the only way that we will see the need for Jesus to die 
is when we come to the end of ourselves. When we come face to face with our own utter desperation, our own inability to do anything about our situation, when we see that we're totally helpless, and if we come to the end of ourselves, we'll begin to understand that salvation has to come to us from the outside. We can't produce it ourselves. See, humanity is, is powerless to do anything against the demons who make us deaf and mute and seek to destroy us. You know, there's some things that we can, that we can do. There's some things that we can heal. But we see here the reality of the depth of evil in this demon. So we see trials in the valley, and we also see that there are tests of faith in the valley. And the question for us as we walk through the valley is, is do we depend on the power of the king on the mountain? Look at verse 18. It says, The disciples had tried to cast the demon out, but they had failed. I mean, they had every reason to, to expect that they could be successful. Jesus had told them to cast out demons and had given them power to do so, and they'd done it before. Why wasn't it working now? And we learned from verses 28 and 29 that it was because the disciples had relied on their own strength. They had not been dependent upon God. They'd attempted this exorcism without even praying which is a, a radical display of unbelief. This demon-possessed boy was such a great problem, and nobody could do anything about it. And the father of the boy isn't even sure when Jesus shows up that he'll be able to do anything either. And in verse 22, he says, you know, if you, if, if you can do anything, then help us. And Jesus challenges him. And the father says... In the next verse, in verse 24, some of the best lines in the Bible. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. He says, I do believe, but I've got doubts that are running all through my mind. Help me. And Jesus does. See, what we learn about faith here is that it's not really the quality of our faith or the quantity of our faith that saves us. See, it's very, very easy for us to start focusing on how well we're believing and to start thinking, you know, God will only answer my prayer if I can just believe hard enough. If I believe enough, then he's got to answer my prayer. But don't you see how that, that shifts the focus to us? We end up having faith in our faith rather than Jesus. See, it's not the quality that matters. And so Jesus casts out the demon, and, and the demon thrashes the boy on his way out, and he looks like he's dead. And in verse 27, it says, Jesus lifted him up, and he arose. Mark intentionally uses resurrection language here, because the only, the only way that Jesus would really be able to cast out this demon from the boy is through his own death. And resurrection. Utter, utter desperation. And yet Jesus' glory shines brightest against the dark backdrop 
of human inability? So what's our task? Our task is simply to look up to the mountain and to see the glorious king and trust him. That's what our task is. Because sometimes, quite often, the valley gets really, really dark. Sometimes, the sadness just seems to press into you so deeply. And sometimes, the tears just start flowing and you don't even know why you're crying. But you're just overwhelmed with sadness or anxiety. And you don't even understand it. The valley can bring radical depression that makes you despair. And sin and Satan are literally twisting you, body and mind. And you're powerless. And some of you have experienced desperately wicked things. Things that that you don't even talk about. That you won't talk about with anyone. Things that, that you, you try to forget about. Pretend that they never happened. But it's like trying to hold six basketballs underwater. And they keep popping up in places where you don't expect. And you can't get away from it. See, forgetting about our, our past pain isn't going to take care of it. We might try to set up camp on the mountain. We might say, whew, if we can just create the perfect environment where we're protected and safe from all the demons, then we'll be okay. And we can just live there. But Jesus says we have to go down the mountain with him. Jesus says we have to go into the dark valley. You see, if Jesus doesn't leave the mountain, we don't have any hope. See, Jesus says, in order for there to be true restoration, I've got to go into the deep valley, and I've got to storm the gates of hell, and I've got to defeat and conquer the demons, and I've got to break the chains that bind your heart in sin in order to set you free. So he has to go down into the valley. And the only way to do that is through the cross. And he tells us that we must follow him. And so our depression and our desperation and our sickness and our sadness should all serve to do one thing. To convince us of the relevance of Jesus' death. That he had to die. Our problem is too great. There was no other way. And so we've got to believe in Jesus' death that frees us from the power of sin and evil, but we also have to believe in, in the power of his resurrection that brings new life and restoration. We've got to believe in, in both his humiliation and his exaltation, his humiliation and that he went to the cross bearing the weight of all of our sins in order to set us free. But we also have to see, as we're in the valley, his exaltation, his rising again from the dead on the third day, ascending up into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and coming to judge the world at the last day. The fact that Jesus is a judge is really good news. See, if you're 
one of the folks that has been deeply hurt by someone in the past, you know how the pain continues to boil beneath the surface for decades. What's going to keep you from killing that person in your mind and in your heart over and over again each day? The only thing that's going to bring you true release, true freedom, is to look up at the mountain and see Jesus as the righteous judge and to know that he is going to come back and that he is going to punish all evil, that he is going to put everything to rights. And if you really believe that, then you just might be able to let go and forgive. So that's where we need the vision when we're down in the valley. But the question is, where do we get that vision? Because we don't expect that Jesus is actually going to appear to us on a mountain. Back in verse 1, Jesus only promised the 12 disciples that some of them would see the transfiguration. Nine of them missed out. Only Peter, James, and John got to go on this little expedition. But it transformed them. It branded their minds. It was something that they held on to and they never forgot. Peter writes later, many years later, in 2 Peter 1... He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, what a great memory to have. I mean, what an incredible experience. I mean, these guys never forgot it. They were able to look back to it. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we had that same experience as well? If we could actually see Jesus in his power and glory on the mountain. I mean, that would be a memory sufficient for any dark valley that we might encounter. But listen to Peter's next words. Because see, these are are some of the most amazing in the whole Bible, I think. Peter's just said, we were eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus in his glory. God spoke to us out of the cloud. We heard his very voice. And his next words are, and we have something more sure. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Something more sure. What Peter is saying is that the Bible that we hold in our hands is a more sure testimony of Jesus' glory than that whole experience that they had up on the mountain. You know, when we take the Bible and we, and we view it as just helpful instructions for everyday Christian living, then we've got to create our own experiences. We've got to do something to get pumped up. But Peter is saying that we can go to the mountaintop just by opening God's word. 
And that when we're there, what we see is, is Jesus' glory radiating out on every single page of the Bible. And it says to us, this is the real king. This is the king who is reigning right now in power and glory. This is the king who was humiliated on the cross to defeat sin. And this is the king who was exalted, who conquered the power of death, who is reigning at God's right hand. This is the one who went through the valley of darkness that we might live with him in glory. Some of you may have seen the painting by Raphael called The Transfiguration. It was his last painting and it was left unfinished. But it's a gorgeous painting of the transfiguration. And at the top of the painting, you see Jesus radiating light. He looks like lightning, igniting the clouds in the dark sky around him like fire. And Moses and Elijah are, are floating at his right and his left. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are, are down on the ground covering their eyes because the brightness is so bright. And then as you move down the painting, he paints the scene in the valley that's going on at the same time, and it's just full of darkness. And there's people in the shadows. And you see that there is a demon-possessed boy whose eyes are wide, and his mouth is gaping, and his body is twisted as though he's being thrashed around, and his father is there in desperation trying to help his son. And some of the disciples are there trying to exorcise the demon. And the crowd is in a frenzy. But there are two disciples who are doing this. They're pointing up at the top of the mountain. As if to say, look at him. He's reigning in glory. Right now, as we are in this valley of darkness, utterly helpless, he is reigning in glory. And friends, that is what we need to encourage each other with. As we together walk through the valley of deep darkness, look, he is reigning in glory and he's coming back to bring us home. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that your son Jesus was obedient, that he did not take the bloodless path to glory but he shed his blood for us that we might know true freedom from the demons and from death and from darkness. We pray that you would confirm that reality to our hearts when we are prone to doubt, when we're prone to disbelieve, when the darkness presses in, when our minds are full of darkness. Would you allow Jesus' radiant light to shine brightly? And we pray this in his name. Amen.